Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about trade imbalances. So basically, when there are big and, and persistent differences between a country's imports and its exports. And we'll be joined by two special guests. Hi, I'm Matt Klein. I'm the economics commentator at Barron's. My name's Jay Shamba. I'm a professor of economics and international affairs at the George Washington University. And I was in the Obama administration in two stints uh, as a senior economist and then chief economist on the staff from 2009 to 11, and then back again as a member in 2015 and 16. Matt has a new book out with Michael Pettis of Peking University. So we're going to talk about that first. And because their book raises some really interesting questions about imbalances and inequality, we wanted to have Jay talk about the real-world challenges that policymakers face when trying to tackle these problems. We started off by asking Matt about the main thesis of their book. The book's thesis is essentially the title, which is that trade wars are class wars, that rising inequality distorts the global economy. And the reason we say this is that it's not so much about countries versus countries, that governments are acting on behalf of their citizens because, you know, global prosperity is some scarce resource that needs to be fought over. Rather, our argument is that conflicts that look as if they're between countries are really about economic classes. And that when we think about China versus the U.S., that's not really the right framing at all. That geopolitics, you know, there might there are certainly geopolitical issues between the two countries. But really, the economic issue is really between the American working class and American elites and between the Chinese working class and Chinese elites. And in both cases, you have the working class of both countries actually on the same side and elites of both countries essentially on the same side. So there are clearly issues between the United States and China. But how about if we put this in the context of some of the critiques that maybe we're more familiar with? So what about this Lighthizer critique of China, which is basically that the the state, the Chinese government subsidizes too much production and then the excess capacity messes up markets in other countries around the world like the United States. So first of all, I think that to be fair, there is a lot of merit into the Lighthizer critique. I think what I would extend that to is that the reason why it's a problem is because the support that the Chinese government provides to its businesses comes to the expense of Chinese households. And so you have this extra production on the one hand, and it's not met with extra consumption domestically. So Chinese exports on the one hand are higher than they otherwise might be, and at the same time, their imports are relatively lower than they otherwise might be. And there are a lot of mechanisms we can point to to explain how this works, but I think one of the ones that you know might be the most straightforward is that the way the tax system works in China is such that consumption is taxed relatively highly and income is basically taxed not at all. Uh, the Chinese financial system is another way. This has worked historically. It's, it's less of an issue now than it was a few years ago, but it's still an issue, which is that household deposits, which are the main way that Chinese households are capable of saving in the banking system, earn extremely low interest rates relative to sort of fundamental economic growth. Okay, so the argument is that if you're exporting, then that means that you're essentially making stuff that you are not consuming at home. And, and so there are these different kinds of pressures to make stuff that the Chinese consumers are just not going to buy, maybe because they're taxed, uh, maybe they're not getting any interest on their savings or, or whatever. Their, their incomes just aren't high enough to be able to buy all these goods that they are making. Okay, so um, 
Are there any obvious examples of of things that the Chinese state should do that would, would sort of address that? I think that the easiest one to, to think of is uh, labor rights in China. So if you look at the, the Chinese data on the share of non-financial corporate value added that's paid to workers, it's about 40%, which is extremely low. In, in the U.S. and in, in Western Europe and Japan, we're talking more like 60 to 70%. And the reason why it's so low is because the Chinese government actively suppresses workers' rights in a variety of different ways. Adversarial unions are illegal. You have a very, very large population of workers in cities who came from the countryside. And because of that, and because of something called the hukou system or the household registration system, they lack access to lots of basic uh, rights and access to the social security system that people born in the cities have. So these kinds of things undermine the bargaining power of workers and, and they boost the profitability of Chinese businesses. And so what that ends up meaning is that workers are paid much, much less than the value of what they produce. That excess goes to the profits of of companies, the profits of you know the incomes of the rich in China, and for that matter, to the profits of multinationals that have operations in China. But workers in China are not paid commensurately. And so they don't have the income to absorb you know, imports equivalent to whatever it is they're exporting. Okay, so you've described to us the Chinese side. How about the United States? The U.S. also has big inequality problems, but it's got trade deficits. So why doesn't that same logic for China hold for the U.S.? So the U.S. is an interesting case because obviously there is extreme inequality in the U.S. And in fact, inequality in the U.S. has gotten more extreme over the period in time that we cover in, in detail, which is really the past 30 years or so. And so the question is, given that, why is it not the case that the U.S. didn't end up developing large trade surpluses with the rest of the world? And our argument is that there's essentially a much larger countervailing force. So independent of the fact that there are these imbalances within the U.S., there's also the fact that the U.S. financial system is so open and so accessible to people in the rest of the world that the dollar and dollar-denominated assets are so useful for people who want to save. Okay, and the point here is that people just want dollars so badly that they are willing to basically lend money to the U.S. and, it, and it's going to buy these imports. So capital flows in, that fuels these big trade deficits. And then I guess the question for policymakers is, you know, what, what could the U.S. have done differently? Um, were there practical solutions to these massive capital inflows? So one of the things that could have been done that at the time would have been, I think, unrealistic to expect given the advice that the U.S. had just given to the rest of the world in the 1990s. But one of the things that could theoretically have been done would have been some kind of active measure to discourage foreigners from buying U.S. assets, whether it's some kind of uh, tax on foreign inflows or the type of reserve system like they have in Chile. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of sort of capital flow management measures, I think is the preferred term the IMF now uses, or capital controls. That could have theoretically had some of an impact. Of course, given the advice that the U.S. had given the rest of the world in the 1990s, that would have been impractical. So that doesn't seem particularly realistic or useful to have expected. The other thing the U.S. could have done Another thing the U.S. could have done would have been trying to actively countervail those flows by having the either the Treasury or the Fed coordinate to essentially buy an equivalent amount of, of foreign assets. So you have a whole bunch of money coming in from one direction, a whole bunch of money going out the other direction. 
So this should sound familiar to Trade Talks listeners who may remember episode 104, because this is an argument that my Peterson Institute colleagues, Joe Gagnon and Fred Bergstrom, have put forward in some of their work on countervailing currency manipulation. But as we said then, it's not as easy as it sounds to actually do this in the real world, though, though I do recommend going back and re-listening to that episode, number 104. I should say that Chad kind of re-listens to the back catalogue, you know, a few episodes a week just to just to keep, kind of keep things going. Um, okay, before we, we go on to Jay, um, just one more question for Matt. So there is a third country that the book goes into, which is Germany. So Germany is, is a big, rich, advanced manufacturing economy uh, like the US, but its external picture looks super, super different. So, so what's going on there? If you look at what happened in Germany sort of since the 1990s and what's happened in the US since the 1990s, in many ways, they're very similar stories. And yet on their external positions, you see very, very, you see essentially the opposite picture. So the big story of Germany is essentially the opposite of what most Germans will tell you, or even what most sort of casual observers will tell you. And, and that sort of wrong view is that in Germany, there's just they're just very productive people and they're very thrifty people. And so, of course, they save a lot. And of course, they have these you know world-beating exports. And why would it be any different? The problem is that this is not really borne out by the data, that actually what we see in Germany is that the export, the, the shift in Germany's external position is driven entirely by weak import growth, not by strong export growth. That actually what happened in Germany wasn't that the productivity boomed. It's just that workers got paid a lot less and companies in Germany increased their profitability at the expense of their employees. So the argument there is Germany looks more like China than it does the US because it basically suppressed wages. Normal people didn't, didn't spend enough, including on imports. And again, the argument is that inequality within Germany fueled these external imbalances. And if normal people could just spend more, then that would help the big imbalances problem. It would help that just go away. Okay, so we have these three countries, Germany, China, and the U.S. And and the issue, I guess, is that when trying to resolve these big problems, the, the populations aren't talking to each other. The, the communication is happening through policymakers, the, the elites. Now, you could argue that perhaps the problem is that the elites don't care enough about the, you know, the median, the average person that they're representing. But suppose they do. So suppose you are an American policymaker and you realize that, you know, domestic policies in other countries mean that you are experiencing all sorts of problems. What do you do about that? We thought we'd ask this to Jay Shambaugh. Jay was part of the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors from 2009 to 2011, and again from 2015 to the beginning of, of 2017. He wasn't in charge of, of any of these negotiations, but he was a close observer of how international negotiations between governments over issues like imbalances can sometimes go. So we asked Jay to tell us what it was like. Did the Obama administration officials recognize imbalances as a problem? I would say yes. The U.S. government actually really did think of imbalances as a problem. And I would say in a few different ways. In particular, there was a big emphasis on the need to increase demand in a number of countries and the idea that a lack of spending in some countries that were running large current account surpluses was a problem. I would add two caveats to it, though. On the one hand, I would say that 
there was really a view that this was particularly a problem because we were at the zero lower bound and that we were in a global recession and interest rates were zero. And that made it a bigger deal that these countries didn't have enough demand going on. So I think that was a big issue that if in a normal time, if there's not enough demand in your economy, the central bank can lower interest rates and kind of bring you back towards full employment. When you're at zero, you don't really have that method. And so aggregate demand becomes something of a finite commodity around the world. And I think that's particularly an issue in a global recession. Um, Often in these discussions, there is a lot of blame being being handed around. You you criticize the surplus countries um, or you, you shame the U.S. for spending so much. Was the view at the time that everyone else was the problem, that the U.S. was the victim here? People in the administration didn't really look at the capital inflows in the 2000s as something that the U.S. was, say, blameless or helpless about. I think there was a view that um, there was capital flowing into the United States economy, but financial regulation hadn't been very appropriate in the 2000s. And you see this in terms of policy response of doing the Dodd-Frank bill to, to do new financial regulation, a view that, yes, capital was flowing in and it got used in, in many cases, irresponsible ways. But that was in part because we didn't have proper financial regulation set up at the time. So in the U.S., you've got money, these capital flows coming in and the wrong kind of of domestic policy for financial markets. And that was part of the problem. Our regulations meant that the banks were taking on a lot of risk. People could get a mortgage without a job or any kind of documentation. But that was very much a policy choice. It might not have been a great one, but that was very much a decision that American policymakers themselves had made at the time. Okay, so there was some acknowledgement of that in the United States. But how about other countries? Who at that point were you mostly worried about? I I think clearly the two biggest issues in surplus countries, uh, especially back at that time, were China and Germany and Japan to some extent as well. But really, China and Germany were the biggest. And China was certainly the largest right as I was coming into the administration. So, you know, when they had a really, really large uh, current account surplus in 2007 and eight that was viewed as as a big issue. So when you have an issue like this, where do you end up negotiating? Is this a sort of everyone hang out in Davos kind of thing? Is this a bilateral thing? I would say the biggest place you see an emphasis on imbalances was through the G20. Uh, and so you saw this really at the start of the G20 in April of 2009, the view was everybody needed to do stimulus, right? It couldn't just be some countries because there was a reality that some countries could almost free ride off other countries' stimulus. And that is that imbalances issue. And so there really was a big emphasis. Everyone is going to do stimulus simultaneously, and that will help lift the world out. After that, you did see the G20 on a rolling basis. I don't want to say it was always perfect, but there really was at times, you know, a creating a view around an external imbalances procedure that if imbalances were too large, that it was it made sense to have consultations and talk about the macro policies that were driving these imbalances if they got above three or four percent of GDP. And so the G20 really showed up, I'd say, as the leading venue for it. Bilaterally, it came up a lot in the strategic and economic dialogue with China. So this this was a big deal there. I, honestly, I think the literally the first thing I did when I showed up at the CEA in 
on July 1st of 2009 was to help write talking points explaining to the Chinese policymakers that we were not going to go back to a world where U.S. demand drove Chinese growth. And that was just how kind of a talking point that stayed around for a long time to the point that even at some points you would see President Obama say, look, China is too big to grow on the back of U.S. demand. It just doesn't work the way it might have worked in the 90s. We can't go back to a model like that. So I think there was a real emphasis through the strategic and economic dialogue that we we couldn't do this. I, it comes up in other forms, too, and in bilateral conversations with Germany as well, to some extent. But I, I'd say most of all in the G20 and in conversations with China. So take us into the room. In, in one of these government-to-government dialogues, what specifically would the U.S. government ask for? Was it just some big, broad targets that they wanted these other countries to meet? Or were there specific policy suggestions that they thought these other countries could actually deploy that would make things better? Like, if we were you, we might fix this sort of policy. I'd say it's a combination, especially with China. There would be a view of saying we need to see China committing to lifting consumption broadly, just in general. But then on top of that, there were really specific combination of advice and asks around how that happens. So one would be, say, kind of a constant view to increase the dividends coming out of the state owned enterprises. And the view was that would lift the household income share. It's actually something that um, people honestly like Michael Pettis push a lot, that that's an issue, that you have a low household sector share of the economy in China. And the view was if we lifted state-owned enterprise dividends, that would help. Also, similarly, if you strengthen the social safety net in China or reform the hukou system, that things like that might reduce precautionary savings within the household sector. And that those types of things could lift consumption and shrink saving and get rid of the current account surplus to some extent. The issue with Germany, honestly, I would say was tougher. And one reason is part of what Germany needed was to spend more. And there was almost this sense that Germany faced a different zero lower bound. The zero was on fiscal policy, that they just would not cross into deficit. And so if the thing you needed from Germany was a fiscal deficit, they just weren't going to talk about it. But we talked to them, frankly, we tried to get creative. We tried to come up with anything that would increase demand in Germany. And so we talked to them about doing value-added tax cuts that would increase consumption. They didn't like that. Uh, Talked to them about cutting the value-added tax and increasing payroll taxes to just kind of tilt towards consumption. That's actually something uh, Gita Gopinath, who's the chief economist of the IMF now, talked about in a paper with some co-authors that if you did that in Germany and did the opposite in other countries in Europe, you could kind of rebalance. Not a lot of uptake there. We even tried pushing whether it was infrastructure or private investment. Towards the end, we tried the angle that, look, you've had this big increase in immigration. So labor supply has grown. You need to increase capital just to stay where you were before. So you need to do a lot of investment. I I would say Germany viewed us talking about their domestic policy as a little bit more, I don't want to say out of bounds, but they just, they're like, okay, that's nice. Whereas China viewed that as much more part of negotiations. So just just following up on that China point, um, can you say a bit more about about how they received these these American requests? So I'd say you got two different things, and it depended on the point in time. There certainly was sometimes, especially early in 2009, you need to clean up your own backyard. You know, your fiscal deficit is the problem. Don't blame us. Or you know, often it would be you restrict exports of U.S. technology to China, and that's why we have 
you know, we don't import as much from you. But I think what was interesting was often, especially around the broad macro targets, they didn't actually disagree. And so it would sometimes feel a little surreal. You'd go in and say, look, you need to lift consumption. And they'd say, yes, we agree. We need to lift consumption. Look at our most recent five-year plan. It explicitly says lift consumption. And it even said, and our target is to increase imports. And so it's hard to complain because that was literally what we wanted. And then they would turn around and say to us, but you need to cut your budget deficit. And we would say, well, yeah, look at our budget forecast for the next five years. We're obviously going to bring the deficit down. It just exploded because of the recession. And so it felt a little surreal because we would just be agreeing with each other. But the problem was then getting down to the specifics and seeing it move on a pace that you wanted. So if China was comfortable saying we're going to increase consumption, we might say, yes, so let's, let's get that going now. And here are a whole bunch of ways you could do it. And on that, they might say, well, yes, those are all things we're considering, or those are all ways we might go about doing it. But it'd be a little bit harder to to get things pinned down there. So if you listen to the the Trump administration, then the view of these sorts of discussions is that the Chinese just talked and and talked and didn't actually do anything. They, They would string the U.S. along, but they would never actually follow through with these promises. What's your view? Do you think that these talks actually got anything done that the Chinese wouldn't have done otherwise? Did they did they matter? I, you know, the, the truth is, I think it did matter. I, I think having rebalancing being a top level priority over and over and over. And I, I should say there, I can't promise it always was because I was there for the first two years in the last year and a half. And I would say during those periods, it was something we talked about a lot. I can't promise it wasn't the intervening four because I wasn't there to see it. But it, it was a big issue and, and consistently rose to kind of the top speakers' engagements with China. And I think it did make a difference. And I can think of one specific example that, that helped clarify it for me, which is early 2016, there was a lot of chatter in financial markets that, well, China's currency needs to depreciate a whole bunch. They're growing slower. And the only way out of that is a depreciation. And we had spent a very long time engaging with the Chinese saying, it is inappropriate for you to try to grow based off a depreciation. Exports should not be the way out of a slowdown for you. And eventually, Governor Joe, who's the head of the central bank, gave a speech or made some comments where he said very explicitly, if we get a surprise slowdown in growth, we have plenty of domestic tools to react to that slowdown in growth with fiscal or credit policy. We do not need to use the exchange rate to accomplish that. And that suddenly kind of stabilized the exchange rate, stabilized financial markets. I'm not sure how much you want to link that to conversations he was having with the U.S. Treasury or conversations that took place with the Obama White House. But there's a part of me that thinks you would not have gotten those same sorts of comments if it weren't for the continual engagement. The other place I think you see it is an easy one to point to is with Japan. So Abenomics comes in. Part of Abenomics is expansive monetary policy, and any macroeconomist will tell you that should lead to a depreciation, and one channel of growth is going to be through exports. And there was a very firm line coming out of the G7 and G20 of domestic tools for domestic purposes, and you can't go around and say, we're doing this to goose growth off exports, and we're going to ride off everybody else's demand. And Japan never did crossed that line, or I think they did once and very quickly walked it back. And so I think there was a greater understanding over time from countries, okay, we understand where the lines are and we can't 
at least run a, a policy explicitly aimed just running off exports because we're too big and we recognize that has spillovers. Okay, so Obama-era negotiator thinks that Obama negotiations achieved things. Um, very good. Um, so any bilateral relationship has a few different components. Um, maybe you want cooperation on climate change, North Korea. Um, was fixing the macroeconomic imbalances always the priority? Did you, did you feel like you were always first on the list? or as high up on the list as you wanted to be? I would say it was often a priority, but it was also, it always took work to keep it a priority. And one of the reasons is, honestly, I think quite understandable, which is if you have the Treasury Secretary or the President engaging internationally, they only have a few asks that they can make because there's just a finite amount of time. Um, or if you're going into a negotiation, you've got top-level asks and then others. And if you're debating what asks are we going to put up front, you could see it's much easier to say, well, you know, this airline needs more slots at that airport, right? And that's going to increase, you know, revenues for this American airline. That's a very tangible goal. And it's something if they say, yes, you know you won and you know you got. Or if you say, hey, this trade restriction is hurting our exports from this industry, can you relax that? That's something that is very, very tangible. And to put those tangible asks up against, you need to consume more. We need to deal with these imbalances. It can be hard in internal conversations within the U.S. government to keep holding that line and say, no, look, the macro really is important here. We can't, yes, we need these other things, but we can't lose sight of the macro goal. It can be hard to, to keep making that argument, but I think it's an important one because, Yes, you can fix all the little things, but set against the broader background, they may not mean as much. Yeah, I, I think overall, any government, even one as big and powerful as the United States, just has limited power in reality when trying to, to influence the internal decisions and processes in, in foreign countries. I'm just, I'm just going to put this out there. Um, but sometimes it doesn't play that well overseas um, for America to be sort of bossing you around. Sometimes people don't like it. Um, okay, but but let's talk about today now. What, what is your impression of the imbalances today? Where's the problem? I would say it's a different issue today. So on the one hand, you know, we're back in a global recession. We're back at the zero lower bound for most central banks. And so that way, it makes it all the more salient once again, because right now, the US, the EU, China are all committing to aggressive fiscal policy, are all committing to driving domestic demand. And the concern you always have is that you get fatigue around that. You get stimulus fatigue or budget fatigue, and everybody starts retrenching with domestic demand and hoping that exports will carry them. But we can't all export to each other to drive demand simultaneously. Someone needs to do the buying. And so I think there is a concern that over the next few years, you could get some backsliding here. On the other hand, I think you can say the problem is smaller in many ways. So, you know, leading into the global financial crisis, the U.S. was running current account deficits of five or six percent of GDP for a number of years. Those are really big inflows. For the last number of years, it's been around two percent. So it's just a much smaller scale issue in the United States. And similarly, China at one point peaked around, you know, 
10% of its GDP, and now it's consistently under 2% lately. Now, the trick with China is it's so much bigger as a scale for the world that even a small surplus in China can still be meaningful now just as a share of the world's economy, but it's still much smaller than it was. The flip side of that is Germany is still there, right? Germany's running a current account surplus of 8% of GDP. The Netherlands around 10% of GDP. Kind of the Northern European surplus countries are running big surpluses. And I think that's still a problem within the euro area because you can see those countries, kind of their currency can't appreciate, which is what you might normally think would happen to help correct the imbalances. They can't appreciate because they're part of a currency union. But it also means that within the euro, you kind of have demand in the wrong place. You don't have enough demand being driven by these countries that have a more sound economy and stronger fiscal positions. And that probably weakens demand for the peripheral countries that could really use some help. So I I think there's still an issue there and there's a worry about the issue in the future. But certainly relative to the heyday of huge U.S. deficits, huge Chinese deficit surpluses, it's a different problem than it was. And I guess the last thing I would say on that is It's also a problem that I think is different in that there's more recognition around it, right? The IMF now runs regular external balance assessment programs. They brief the G20 about what's going on with external imbalances. There really, I think, is more of an infrastructure set up to hopefully handle problems if they get bigger. Uh, And so that, if anything, is maybe the one encouraging thing around it. Okay, I have one last question. I want to go back to this overall big theme relating external imbalances and and inequality. So, Jay, do you think that reducing America's imbalances, if we could just get rid of those, would that go a really long way toward helping the inequality problems within the United States today? I think the very short answer to that is no. I I think correcting sectoral imbalances can sometimes be more important. So if the U.S., we're able to manufacture more that would help certain types of jobs that help certain communities and certain types of workers. And so I don't want to discount that. But going from a 2% current account deficit to a 0% current account deficit alone, just the aggregate, I don't think that is going to drive a meaningful shift in inequality. I think far more important would be anything around policies for worker bargaining power, unions, labor market institutions like the minimum wage, non-compete contracts, mandatory arbitration, a whole host of things that could make, give workers a better share of the pie, I think are, are just far more important on the one hand. And then things around regional inequality that can be really important that then spill over into other types of inequality. And for then for that matter, although I never want to imply it can solve everything, especially for some people, just better education and training can lift up a lot of people. And people in the United States who don't graduate from high school are just going to face a tougher road economically. And as you can shrink the number of people in that position, you can do a lot to help inequality. And so I think there are far more important domestic policies that could correct inequality in the United States rather than the focusing on the current account deficit. That said, again, I will say, especially at the zero lower bound, I take surplus countries that are not generating enough demand in the world to be a real problem. So I I don't want to say it's unimportant, especially when we're in a global recession. But to me, it's not the primary link to inequality. And on that note, I think we should wrap up. 
And just, just to summarize everything, Matt's argument is that it is internal inequalities within China and Germany that drive their big external imbalances. And America's international financial role means that it soaks some of it up. It's hurt by those. I guess on that last point, the way Jay would frame it um, might be more of a, a policy choice on the part of the U.S. There was a failure of domestic regulation. Um, I, I, you know, I doubt Michael and Matt would disagree um, that there was a failure of domestic regulation. It's just just in the emphasis, you know. And I think everyone just agrees that there are problems everywhere. I think that's right. And, and when it comes to the financial market regulation, that's also clearly one of the areas that the Obama administration tried to fix um, when, when they came into office. But overall, on this question of, of what to do about this, I hope nobody has been left with the impression that, that any of this is easy. But I think what is most important here is it, it seems that the direct way of tackling the imbalances issue is, is to get countries to do better domestic policies. And the problem is when they don't, then you have some government comes along, like what we've seen with the Trump administration, and it tries to fix them with tariffs. Okay, uh, that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Matt Klein at Barron's for talking to us about his new book with Michael Pettis, Trade Wars Are Class Wars. And a big thanks as well to, to Jay Shambaugh at George Washington University for sharing with us his experience of what it's like negotiating over macroeconomic imbalances out there in the real world. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.